This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Recall This Book Collaboration Edition. Uh, I'm John Plotz, flying solo today, and um, along with our upcoming conversation with composer Francisco Del Pino, this conversation is going to inaugurate a series of what it's like to work together, write together, make art together. So coming from a world of lonely makers, so not just the novelists I write about, but all the scholars who study them alone in book-lined rooms, I've always been really jealous of, well, people like my own journalist brother who works with a team to come up with a shared product. So what better way to overcome my own fraternal issues than to interview a prize-winning pair of journalistic brothers, uh, Steve Finaru and Mark Finaru Wada. Welcome to Recall This Book. It's great to have you. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Okay, so I'm going to begin by introducing Steve because he and I have been working together at Princeton this fall. And in fact, like some kind of Graham Greene characters actually living together in this <laughs> weird apartment building. Um, we do everything but drink vermouth cassis together at the end of the day. Um, so Steve needs no introduction, or maybe I should say he needs many introductions. Um, I'll just say briefly, he won a 2008 Pulitzer for an amazing series of stories about American private contractors during the invasion of Iraq, and that he, along with his brother, wrote a best-selling book that I'm sure many of our listeners know about the NFL cover-up of concussion trauma, League of Denial, which won a 2014 Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing. And Mark is equally impressive. I say that even as an older brother, but I have to admit the younger brother is equally impressive. After breaking the bulk of steroids scandal in 2004 and 5 with his colleague Lance Williams, for which he nearly went to jail for refusing to reveal sources, he wrote a 2013 bestseller on that topic, Game of Shadows, Barry Bonds, F- Balco, and the steroid scandal that rocked professional sports. So apart from your groundbreaking concussion work, both of you have many other fantastic stories in the past and are currently at work on um, some other stories. For example, I think you're working on the NBA in China that I think are no doubt going to draw further attention. Um, there's a ton to talk about. I want this conversation to go wherever the best stories are, um, but maybe we can begin at the beginning. And so this beginning I thought of is like, what's the first story you guys worked on together? I was at ESPN already and Steve thankfully joined. They were doing a big push to hire, um, you know, a bunch of uh, really talented writers and they hired Steve, um, you know, not long after he'd won his Pulitzer. and. And I had gotten assigned a story that were, that ended up sort of hatching League of Denial. And um, and in the course of doing the reporting on that book, Steve had just gotten hired. I came back from doing the reporting on that story. And I told Steve about the experience and how somebody had suggested we write a book about the NFL and brain damage. And, and um, you know, Steve had already written two. And, um, you know, was really good at conceiving books and I as as stories as books and so um, we sort of shared this idea and then put together a proposal and and in the course of doing that we started to work on the book together and we're also working on stories for ESPN. ESPN was supportive of the project and so um, we ended up in addition to the reporting for the book we were producing stories so I, I I don't know exactly what the first story is do you remember like I think it was uh I think it was the story about how when we were we started to report the book and um, so we were doing a lot of traveling for the book 
and we went to interview a lawyer who represented the first NFL player who was later diagnosed with um, neurodegenerative disease, Mike Webster. And um, this did you guys go together because you always travel together or was it a special? Well, I mean, it seems like a big deal for two reporters to go out. You know, it's interesting because like we we do seemingly usually travel together. Like we, (laughs) you know, we're we're, so we we went to Morgantown, West Virginia, and we this guy was operating out of like a kind of a converted firehouse. And um, and so we were just almost like at that point familiarizing ourselves with the story. And uh, this guy pulled out a bunch of documents related to a disability case that um, he had filed against the NFL. So he pulls out these documents and um, we could tell immediately that the NFL had been handing out um, they'd been handing out millions of dollars in benefits to. Uh, NFL players who had been diagnosed with neurodegenerative disease related to their playing careers, while at the same time the league very publicly and emphatically was denying that NFL players ever get brain damage. And that was, among other things, it was the the central focus of a class action lawsuit um, filed by players against the NFL. So that was, I think that was our first story. We wrote it as a news story for for ESPN. I mean, I would say that like, even though we hadn't worked together um, before any of this and, you know, we had been working as, you know, journalists for both of us, you know, for well over two decades at that point, you know, we were constantly talking, you know, we're really close and sharing ideas. And we had talked about wanting to work together and um, we had like edited each other's stories. I I helped edit Mark's, first book and um so we, we we did a lot of stuff together so i don't think actually i mean it was it was great that we were fine we always wanted to do a book together so it was great that we were finally doing it but i think actually the process itself it didn't feel that unusual like that revelatory because i think we had been we had been talking about journalism together for so long um that it really came naturally to us particularly the reporting yeah i think yeah. the reporting especially yeah, I think that's right. The book, I think, is a different animal, but the reporting, for sure, was pretty natural. You know, and we and we fell into a groove of the, the sort of areas we we either felt more comfortable in or people we knew that we were going to call, and the sources sort of separated pretty naturally, almost in an odd way. Um, it was pretty natural, strangely. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, I was going to ask you that about the sort of sorting out. So how would you divide that? Because I know in any collaboration, there's like implicit division lines. But what, yeah, what did, did you did you sit down and sort of draw that out? Or how do you, how do you figure out how to share it out? I mean, I think for, there was different animals for the for the book. It was an entirely sort of different process. But for stories, it seemed to sort of almost organically happen. I mean, we had we we, we just sort of developed a series of sources between us, and then if there was a question of who was going to call who, we would just say, hey, you know, here, you take these three, and I'll take these three, or whatever. And we were constantly talking about the story, so we were always on the, the same page, you know? And so I don't think, and I also think, like, you know, we've talked about this a bunch around, both with ourselves and other colleagues, that, like, so much of this kind of reporting is really about trust, mm-hmm. I think, when you're working with somebody else. And if you don't trust the person, that's just you know, massive. And so with us, we had a built-in level of trust. Obviously, it made it so much easier. And so I I think that... Mark, can I just jump in? Because when you first said trust, I assumed you meant between yourself and your sources, but you actually mean between the people. Can you say more about that? Totally. No, I mean the trust between you and and your colleague. I just think that's, you know, because if you don't, I mean, you know, the the process, I mean, I think it's true of any reporting, but like on these stories, there's a delicate nature in some ways of the investigative quality of them. And sometimes you're talking to people who are really reticent to talk. And so I think that you and your colleague have to be on the same page about how you approach people or or at least about sort of the, the nature of where the story's headed. And um, and if you don't, I don't think if you don't have, I think if you don't have that trust, it makes, it, it just makes the process dramatically more difficult. And I almost think impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Like because I mean journalism in particular, I think this is probably true of just about any collaboration, but also sort of like any work of of journalism or or probably even writing. I mean, I've I've written any fiction, but like it it just involves a series of endless choices that you're mm-hmm. making all the time, mm-hmm. like constantly, like 
choices around the reporting, choices about what you're going to emphasize in the book, um, choices about w- where you're going to go and when you, when you're going to do it. Like it's just it, it's it's just endless. They're just coming at you constantly, and so if you don't have a partner who you're um, who you trust implicitly and can have a dialogue that is based on sort of trust and mutual respect, yeah. you're, you're, the project is dead. Of course, as you guys started talking, I realized that as journalists, you've had lots of reporting partners over the years who are not your brother. <laughs> so, yeah. so like, is there something you could say specifically about, you know, the difference of having a partner who, where you know the emotional bond is there and it's not going away? I mean... I mean... Yeah, that's really an interesting question because I I've had a mix of um, experiences and I I mean it's funny because I'm I I think this process you know with I think the emotional bond with Steve is obviously very different than I've got with anybody else I've worked with and so but at the same time I have all as the younger brother I have all sorts of insecurities around that and so not that I never thought that. Steve was not going to stay my brother and stay friends and stay close with me if this didn't work somehow. But I think that there was an added element of pressure to the process Mm. that I didn't feel necessarily with, say, my colleague who I worked on Game of Shadows with. Yeah. Because it's just a different level of pressure to perform. Yeah. And to deliver and all of those things. I mean, we, we've had this conversation in various ways over the years, and Steve hates it. He despises the, this part of the conversation. <laughs> I'm just impatient with he, it. Because he's really. impatient. He thinks it's sort of bullshit. But it's it's my reality, so yeah. you know, yeah, he, I don't, he has I to don't, live with it. So. I, I, I'm not, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not in any way, like, uh, denying your reality. Yeah. I'm just... Yeah, so it's so I, I you know I think it, it sounds like a league of denial. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it's a, if it creates a different animal for sure. Yeah, you know, I think it's and and it and it it uh, I think I think on the one hand uh, it emboldened the the, the partnership for sure, like a hundred percent. Yeah, it, the the just types of things that Steve just described, we never have. I don't. I can't think of one instance really where we had. A sort of fundamental disagreement about what the story was, or how we were going to pursue the book, or or how to move forward, and 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 I think a lot of that has to do with the sort of bond we share and that connection. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think the thing I talked about earlier and the insecurities around being a younger brother created its own level of tension that at one point, you know, it didn't threaten to implode the book, but it, it certainly like created a really difficult sort of period of time for me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've been trying to get my brother to write this book f- with me for a long time, and that's actually really helpful because he's like, I mean, he has lots of good reasons. He's much busier than I am, but I, I wonder, you know, I always feel like there's some added element of why he doesn't want to do the project. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it also made me think that there's this wonderful description. Max Weber has this argument about how capitalism evolved in northern Italy because there were all of these... Um, kinship networks between the cities where people could rely on each other like you could do business with your cousin in Florence if you lived in Venice in a way that you wouldn't do business with some random dude in Florence yeah, yeah you know you, you, you were asking about like the sort of you know what happens when it doesn't work you know the flip side of that is like when it does work like when you're working with somebody who are like where the collaboration is really pure you know it's just like the greatest thing like I mean I, I, I really like collaborating um, it, I think I don't know if I like it more than, than working alone but it's just such a different qualitatively different experience of doing journalism and uh, and there's something about like when you're in sync with somebody of uh, being able to sort of um, you know screen your ideas and uh, you know and just sort of riff and get some feedback and know that you're not going to be judged and or that maybe you are going to be judged but it's not really going to be something that's you know that's personal yeah yeah yeah. i mean i'm doing a book with someone else right now and it's it's a it's a totally different relationship but it's it is a similar thing like i'm really we have an enormous amount of trust in each other and so the 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 creative process of like figuring out how we're going to prosecute this book is um it's really really exciting and so when it's working it's like the basically the opposite of when it's not 
not working. When it's not working, it's like torture. Yeah. And when it is working, it's like, you know, poetry. It's unbelievable. It's yeah. great. Right. I heard you say that, you know, in a way, you've had two decades where you're both, you know, learning how to be reporters. And it, can you, do you each have like a particular mentor, someone who made a huge impact on you of like how to be a journalist, how to be a reporter? I'd be interested to see how they chime with one another. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was Phil Bennett, who was the, um, uh, I mean, I've had several mentors, you know, when I was, when I was doing, you know, just sports, but I think the, the, the person who really helped me kind of like unlock my potential as a journalist was Phil. Uh, he was the, um, he was the foreign editor of the Boston Globe when I was the Latin America correspondent. Um, I had met him a few years before. Um, then he helped bring me to the post where I, um, I worked as an investigative sports writer at first, but then I went to the foreign desk where he was the AME for foreign. And he was, uh, he was in that job when I first went to Iraq. And then he became the managing editor. And I think more than anything, like he really, you know, I, I think like, you know, if I had to sort of like think of like what my strengths are as a, as a, as a journalist, one of the biggest ones is my ability to kind of see stories, mm-hmm. you know, and conceptualize them, mm-hmm. um, sort of see what they might be yeah. and how to, how to execute them. Yeah. And I basically learned that from Phil. Yeah. Like, uh, he, he just thinks at a, at, at a completely different level than any editor I've ever met. And I have seen him do that for other, I, I'm not unique in that respect. Yeah. I've seen him do that for other. So it's like a kind of an x-ray vision. Like you see the bones underneath, like there's, I all think like I can see like, like, yeah, I, I think they're, they're, you know, I, I, I think I'm, I'm somehow able to take topics or, 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 or like shards of information yeah. and, and kind of, piece them together and, and, and conceptualize them in a way that they could make for an interesting, interesting story, or in this case, our book, or, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, it's, it's a hundred percent true. You know, it, it seems, I feel I'm it's so like, envious of the quality, but I learned that from Phil. Like, yeah. I don't think I would have that if, 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 you know, and it's a really, I, I mean, of skills to have as a journalist, I feel really lucky to have it because, you know, it's just, you know, I, I, it helps you pick stories like, yeah. like the, 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 the stories you pick is so, it's just, there's, it's so important. Yeah. You know, if you stick yourself with a story that you don't really feel passionately about, right. or it's just kind of a dog of a story yeah. or you can't do, yeah. um, you know, you're, you're sort of sunk and, um, so wait, uh, those are three categories. Yeah. The, the ones you don't feel passionately about, right. ones that are a dog, meaning like it turns out not to be that interesting. Well, that all. happens. I mean, especially with yeah. investigative reporting. You know, yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, then, but then the third one is the one that you can't do. Is that? Yeah. I mean, there's some stories that just, you know, for whatever reason are, are unmakeable, you know, like, I mean, I, I say this to Because there's some vital piece of the jigsaw that's missing or. You don't have enough time or you, you just can't get the information yeah. that you need. Um, you know, it can be any number of, of factors. Um, but I think one of the biggest things is not being able to see it, you know, like if you can't see the story, you can't really do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so I find myself a lot of the time, you know, just sort of kind of talking and thinking about, okay, well, what, what actually is the, what is it that we're after? What yeah. is it that we want to really say? Yeah. Um, you know, can we actually get that story? You know, like that. We have a, I mean, probably like half of our conversations are, are about that, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I find myself having those conversations, especially now with my students. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they have 12 weeks. You know, these are the parameters. Um, you know, there uh, many of them are just starting out, you yeah. know, so they have to be, they have to pick well, do something they, because if you're not, I feel like if you're not passionate, they have to be passionate about what they're writing about. Yeah. Because that's another way, I think, to just completely torpedo a story. Like, if you don't believe in it yourself or you're not really into it, yeah. you're not curious about it. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's just going to be, you know, at best kind of flat. Yeah. 
I hope we get back to talking about teaching, actually, because I wanted to ask you about Mark if you've taught too. But but I want to hear about your mentor first. Um, I mean, I, there's sort of, I don't know, I'll cop out and sort of say three, I think three things that led me to sort of where I am, like, or how I've been able to be somewhat successful, I think. One is, um, well, one, Steve, <laughs> pretty obviously. I mean, I just think it's sort of like clear and, and uh, you know, I mean, Steve's just, he's three years older than I am. And, and this is an extension of our, my second, like we were, we in high school with this amazing journalism program. And so my teachers, the two people who taught me, Sylvia Jones and Don Brown mm. were hundred um, percent in addition to Steve, the reason I decided to do this and I wanted to get into it. You know, and it was a, it was like a legitimate, as I look back on it now, it was a legitimate entry into journalism at the high school level. Wow. You know, they really were pushing the idea of how to do this in a professional way. And so, um, um, and they were just so passionate about it and cared about it so deeply. Um, You know, and then, and then his little brother, I was always watching sort of Steve and where his career was going and, and the level of passion he had. And then. And then over the years, being able to have conversations with him, not only about stories, but about my career and how to shape my career and how to move and change. You know, I think those were those were fundamental sort of parts of, of my development. And then, you know, and then I think, you know, on the the steroid story I worked on, I ended up working with Lance Williams and um, and and I didn't really know Lance when we started working other than just as a colleague at The Chronicle. And this is the San Francisco Chronicle. This is the San Francisco Chronicle. And was your high school in Marin? But no, what, it was in Marin. It was Redwood High School. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, Redwood High School. The Redwood Park. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Redwood Park. It's worse than it's bite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so with Lance at the San Francisco Chronicle, I mean, we ended up partnering on, you know, what I think he thought was going to be a couple of months of reporting and ended mm-hmm. up being several years of reporting, including yeah. our book. And um, he just, you know, he had both a different sensibility about the way he went about the job than I did in terms of he's just this very mellow laid back guy who is really sort of quirky and humorous but is just ridiculously dogged Mm -hmm. and so um, you know watching the level not only of his persistence but he covered cops and courts Mm -hmm. previously and so I didn't have a lot of experience in that area so being able to watch him and learn about everything from document hunting to maintaining sources you know those were all sort of critical things for me and so, so it's sort of a, it's sort of a maintaining hybrid. sources in this sense means like keeping someone who will keep talking yeah, to you. Lance is, yeah, Lance yeah. is really good at this. I, I never really processed this that much, but he's always really good about talking about once, you know, he'll establish a source and then yeah. on one story and then years later, and this yeah. actually became really critical in our reporting. He had a source that he developed like 25 years earlier on a totally separate story. And he'd maintained a relationship with that guy for 25 years, oftentimes not writing stories about what they were talking about. And, um, but that guy ended up being a critical source for us. In That's the fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. He, he talks about that all the time, how he's just, and he's just that kind of guy. He just sort of, you know, maintains a hold on people. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. So, so Steve's phrase is like seeing the whole story yeah. is yours about like the, I don't know. The I don't have any. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what my thing is. I mean, yeah. I, I think I, uh, I, I think I, 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 I think if I have something, it's, it's a level of persistence. Yeah. You know, I've, instead of calling one person, I'm going to call six. Yeah. Or, um, you know, and, and sort of just continuing to badger people in a nice way, not in a like pain in the ass kind of way. Yeah. Or trying to be a nice person or whatever. And so I think it's, I think that's, I think that's probably my thing, I guess, if I have a thing. Yeah, that's he's kind of shortchanging it. Like, so, so his, if I had to define sort of what his thing is, it's really like, it's not only the sort of like what he's describing, which is true, but I mean, a lot of people have that. There's a certain ingenuity around it that, um, around sort of like the, the capturing of information mm. and also being able to do it in a way that is um, completely disarming. You know, that's really rare. You know, investigative reporters, you know, they're kind of a type really. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of them are, 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 I think, you know, like 
you know, not to generalize, but I think there is a sort of like, you know, very aggressive, single-minded, um, you know, quality that, you know, can be extremely beneficial. I think Mark, Mark has that, but he's able to balance it and just, just completely disarm people. And, and, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why they were able to, to, you know, break a story that basically the entire country was, you know, was trying to chase. And, um, uh, so yeah, it's not, uh, don't listen to him really. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad though. He mentioned our, our, like his, the, the, uh, Don Brown and Sylvia Jones, who, who were yeah. also my teachers in high school. Yeah. I mean, I, I figured out what I wanted to do when I was like 15 yeah. and I learned it through them and I never really like, you know, yeah, I wish I had someone. I mean, that it's unbelievable. Like, I never, that yeah. was ever, there was yeah. never any, like, I, I'd never thought about really doing anything else. Yeah. Um, and it was really because of them. And, um, yeah, we were really, we were really fortunate in that, totally res- in that respect. 100%. Yeah. And they're still around. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I want to, um, I want to sort of take what you guys are saying and connect it to, this is something that Steve, you mentioned when you presented, um, your sort of fellows talk which is that one of the challenges you guys have faced is reporting people who really don't want stories to come out. And I don't mean individual people, but like, or you, you know, you're going up against organizations like the NBA right now, but clearly the NFL, maybe the U S army or the U S state department. That's a challenge. And I just wanted to hear you guys think about that. It's like different. Yeah. The, the relationship between your stories and these, large structures that could pose a threat to you that don't want this information dislodged, you know, what do you, you know, how do you think about that? And what are the tools you have to go into that? That's a part of the job that I love that. Like, I think that's the, the thrill of the job is not, I find it much more powerful when we're chasing stories that have to do with uh, institutions than individuals. Um, and I, I don't, and I don't, and I think it's, it's, um, it's not, I don't, I don't think I've ever felt threatened by the process. I think I felt emboldened by the process mm-hmm. more than anything, you know, because it's, I mean, it sounds very corny, but I feel like this is, this is in its perfect form. This is what the journalism is supposed to be about, right? Like you should be holding these, these institutions accountable. Mm-hmm. And so there's a thrill of being able to do that. I think the, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, um, you know, getting through that bureaucracy, I think can be really difficult at times, but, um, but I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people, people are very critical of ESPN for all sorts of reasons, sometimes very good ones. And, um, but I think the reality of the place we, we're at is like, we're writing about our business partners pretty regularly, mm-hmm. you know? Um, massive business partners. I mean, the NFL, ESPN pays the NFL $2 billion a year, right? For two and a half. Two and a half billion dollars a year. Billion mm-hmm. for the rights to air Monday Night Football. Yeah. And other, you know, related shows. And so um, I I found the, you know, the idea of being able to do a book that, that cut to the core of the league's presence, um, you know, uh, thrilling. Mm-hmm. You know, not intimidating, not fear-inducing. And I don't think that's because I'm like, any. it's the courageous thing. I just think like that's the journalism, you know? I don't know. That's a sort of simplistic answer probably, but but that's sort of how I feel about it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, it's like, it's, that's, that's part of the thrill. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're like two guys just kind of, rooting around and you know and and you know in our case you know the the nfl was um uh you know not thrilled with what we were doing and uh um i don't know that they actively tried to well i guess when it came to the film they they actively actively tried to stop us but but like you know it, it just feels like I, I don't want to like say this cavalierly or, or sort of like in a, in a um, kind of dismissive way. I think this is just kind of part of the deal, right? You know, this, it's like a, 
you know, you, you have a situation where there's a, you know, a major public health issue that that thousands, if not millions of people are trying to, you know, understand so they can make decisions either about their own lives or about uh, their kids or, you know, whatever. The NFL is the biggest actor in, you know, in this drama. And um, and so figuring out kind of how they're handling it and what they're doing, that just feels like, you know, journalism 101 to me, mm-hmm. really. And so, I mean, we were very transparent with the NFL. I mean, we told them what we were doing. We went to New York and we tried to persuade them to cooperate with our project. And, um, you know, ultimately they wouldn't do it. I mean, I never took it personally. I mean, there it's a massive corporation. like. You know, I, I mean, I think I probably said this in that talk, you know, like in my experience, like when it comes down to these kinds of issues, whether it's the NFL or the State Department or, you know, any other sort of massive entity, like they're there. It's the, 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 the whatever, whatever that entity is, you know, its instinctive reaction is to hunker down, mm-hmm. defend, attack. You know, that's sort of what these things do almost universally. And uh, it just feels like it's part of the part of the deal. to me. But it is also like, I mean, it's sort of a thrill, right? Like, I, I mean, we work in a network in which 99% of the material on the network is either sort of celebratory of sport mm-hmm. or uh, or at least just airing the sport. And I'm not critical of that. That's what pays our salaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but then to be able to sort of like, flip that a little bit and do something that that um, that takes a hard look at those those leads is you know it's thrilling yeah well, so what about I, I, I you guys are the experts so you will correct the nature of the question but it's like about what about when you're breaking those questions about um, institutions like Steve I'm thinking about your pol- your series in Iraq about the contractors you're talking about the institution but you're doing it by way of individuals like you're kind of going through individual stories right does that pose its own particular set of ethical quandaries because mm. you're aim- and like you're aiming at that larger structure but the cracks you're going through have to do with people's individual stories does that well, what would be the ethical issue? I don't know like you know like you know, you have to name names of particular people who are involved. You know, I was really aware of this with that, um, the, the uh, Patrick Radden Keefe book, Empire of Pain, mm. where he's getting at the, the uh, you know, he's, he's getting at the Sackler family, yeah. but he has to do it by blowing open particular moments where people did humiliating things, like take money to write an article or something. Yeah. And you can tell that he's not angry. At, you know, he's not like interested in that person. He's interested in the network of deceit that was going on behind it. Yeah. But you have to go through the person because you have to, you know, you have to bl- open the story. So I guess, I don't know. Maybe the answer is you only tell the positive stories that help you get at the negative, but... Uh, I don't really, know. I yeah. mean... I don't know. I mean, in the case of that story, yeah. you know, I had been in Iraq for, you know, two, two years at that point. And, um, you know, I had written positive stories and the war wasn't going well. So a lot of negative stories and a lot of sort of neither, right. Just stories. Yeah. And, um, you know, th- so this was just a phenomenon that I had, you know, noticed was out there that there was this large group of sort of, uh, you know, mercenaries basically who were, um, had carte blanche to run around the battlefield and do whatever it was that they were doing. Like, I don't think I really understood what their role was. I mean, except in a very kind of general way. Yeah. And so when I got into it, my first, um, you know, my, my first goal was to understand that. And the only way to do that was through individual stories to like go to companies and ask them, ask people like, why are you there? What do you do? How much are you paid? You know, what is your contractual relationship with the U S government or the state department? Like what are the rules of engagement? Um, how much violence are you, have you experienced, you know, just like all of that stuff was a complete mystery to me. And when I got into it, it became, you know, it, it did not take a, an investigative reporter to see that the whole thing was like completely out of control. And, um, 
you know, and once that happened, yeah. I had to go to the institutions because the institutions were technically, you know, the ones who were overseeing this entire, um, you know, system that had emerged, you know, within the sort of inside the war. Yeah. And um, so I didn't feel, you know, it, I, that just well, felt like a kind of a natural thing. To I know, but I think to, I think to John's question, if I'm, if I'm getting it right, like, so, you know, you end up developing close relationships with some of those people, the yeah. individuals. Right. And, 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 and some of that stuff is not, some of the things they're doing or involved in or the dynamic that they're involved in is not necessarily reflecting that great on them. And so if I, if I'm understanding correctly, I think you're getting at this question of like, you know, how do you balance that idea of, you know, you're developing these sources who want to cooperate, you want to be helpful, but they're not always going to look that great themselves. You know? Yeah. I I mean, I guess, you know, it's sort of a, uh, it becomes a little bit more complicated, sort of like the, I think the, the, the sort of the less authority that people have, like, you know, for, so like for the contractors themselves, like I never felt any, um, uh, I guess like judgment around them taking the job because to me, they were no different than like lobbyists who had worked in government and then were capitalizing on their skills. Like these were almost universally people who had been in the military and were making like 10 times as much money as they did in the military doing exactly the same job with less oversight and supervision. So yeah. it was it was just like I didn't have any real judgment and it was sanctioned by the US government. So I had I had zero but I but what happened within that framework was, you know, a lot of really reprehensible things. And so to the extent that people were getting involved, you know, and being you know paid essentially by taxpayers and they were getting involved in activities that were um, you know that that were problematic then I don't, I don't really have any problem writing those things I mean there were there were people that I wrote about who I really ended up being close with or being close with their families and um, you know and so I think some of the material that ended up in you know in particularly my book was um, difficult I think yeah but I think the relationships were such at that point that they knew what was going in the book and I, you know, I talked about it with them and, yeah. and, um, and, and they, and they had not themselves done anything like I wasn't accusing. Anybody yeah. 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 Like, but I think that's the, right. I, I do think the critical piece to that is a level of transparency. Cause I, I think being transparent with those sources early on about where this is going to go and the potential for how it's going to look and all that, but also describing your own motivations yeah. is really sort of a key piece to convincing people to talk to you that there's a reason to talk to you, even if it's going to prove to be uncomfortable. Yeah. I feel like you guys are putting a finger on something really important here, which is that your role as investigative reporter and ultimately like journalists writing it up is like partly you have your own set of judgments about how you feel about people. But like when you, what you were describing Steve about like the people who take this higher paid job working, you know, outside the military structure. And you're saying you have no judgment against them, but your job as a reporter is partly to tell their story. And I just know that there are people who do read that and they they don't pass judgment against the institution. They think they focus on the individual. But in a way that suggests you're doing your job right, which is like you're making it available for people to feel one way or the other about these people. Well, I, I think that like, you know, I mean, we learned this with the NFL. I mean, there, we, there are certain truths that people just do not want to hear. Yeah. You know, like... When we, I mean, when we were writing the NFL book and we started going on the radio, you know, people were asking us like, why do you, why do you guys want to kill football? Yeah. You know? yeah. And we were like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, yeah. really? And, and, you know, but, and I think it's just because, you know, people get very protective you yeah. know, around the war or around the, the totally. sport. But see, you and I have gone back and forth on this about football. I think it's a really interesting one. And Mark, I'd love to hear your thoughts, too, because like I, I shared with Steve that my brother just doesn't want to hear about concussions at all. He loves right. watching football. Yeah. He watches it with his son. It's great. He doesn't want to see it. Now, you guys, I know, are football fans. And yet you wrote this story about mm-hmm. this incredible impact. And, and I, so my brother doesn't want to hear it. I do want to hear it, but the result of my wanting to hear it is that I don't want to watch football anymore. But you guys want to hear the story. You broke the story, and yet you also still love football. 
The, yeah, there's yeah. a yeah. <laughs> there's a level of our own denial, I think for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I you know, I like I just uh, I mean, it's funny because I I I think. You know, people, people, I think one of the values of the reporting, not just ours, but any, is that you're exposing people to truths and, and people can then make their own decisions yeah, about sure. it. And I, I, I certainly don't have any judgment for anybody who decides after finding out the level of exposure that, like, I can't be a part of that. I can't contribute to that. Um, like, I'm dreading the day when the concussion data comes about soccer and it turns yeah. out, because if that happened, yeah. I would just, I don't know what I would do. I would just weep, <laughs> you know, watch cricket. I don't know. Well, they've already, yeah. they've already eliminated heading for, yeah, for I young know. people, too. Believe so. me, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I just, I mean, look, I think that the, they're amazing athletes. The sport's incredible. And, um, and I find myself, I think I watch differently than I used to, for sure. And I cringe in different ways than I used to. But um, I'm, I'm more... I don't know. I find myself more bothered by the the league's uh, uh, sort of like um, belief that the world begins and ends with them than than sort of anything else than the other issues. Their dealings with things like Kaepernick and their dealings with things like uh, you know domestic violence, domestic violence, yeah. and you know I'm 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 more you know the 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 concussion issue is. It's not that it's over, um, but, you know, it, it, it has now been exposed in a fairly wide way. And if a yeah. player's playing, they understand it. I think it's a different question at the youth issue, the, at the youth, you know, the youth level. But, but for the NFL, it is sort of what it is. And, I, 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 you know, the sport is an inherently yeah. violent sport. That's what yeah. it is. And so I think you just have to understand that and accept it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so we're sort of pivoting towards the end here, but I really wanted to ask you guys, just sort of continuing this topic of reporting up, you know, against these big institutions. You're working on the NBA in China now, right? So we did it. We have. We, yeah. We, 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 you feel like you're done? Oh, is that it? Or are you? Yeah. We're we're done on. I don't know if we're done on China. We might be done on China, but we're we're still really interested in the NBA and and. Right. Uh, but we did a lot on China. We've we've done a few several stories on China. Yeah. Yeah. So what's so sort of same? Do you have the same general conclusion there? Like you haven't felt personally threatened at all. It doesn't feel impacted. No. no. The only time I am ever... scared of Adam Silver. Terrified. No, I I think the only time I've ever and it was not I didn't feel physically threatened. The only time I ever felt um, any level of like really deep deep ugly hatred was around the steroid stuff because the level of of emails we would get and phone calls and messages were is just vitriol i mean it was just like you know and, and most people you know they the you know email enables and emboldens people right um they just feel like wow. you don't exist as a human and so they'll just say absolutely anything and so giants fans who hated the reporting because we were reporting largely on, on Barry Barry Bonds, Bonds, yeah. You know, they just were, you know, and then and then when we were when we were looking at a, you know possible prison sentence for the reporting, you know that that emboldened people even more to say all sorts of you know right. crazy stuff. But you didn't get that with the concussion stuff. No, we did. We got a lot of like Steve said, "Why do you hate football? Or why yeah. are you trying to kill football?" Yeah, that kind of stuff. But not not the kind of vitriol we got on on uh, on bombs and steroids. It's funny to me, like the. The question is honestly like kind of amusing to me. Yeah. But like what like 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 the like somehow the NFL is gonna like are are you you know like worried about like the NFL like what they're gonna do to you? Well, you know, I will like, say as an academic with China, I'm really worried about academic freedom stuff because I've seen that at my university. No, like the I Chinese that, government is trying to use funding as a lever. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that yeah. yeah, but there was sort of like a. It's almost like in uh, in the Will Smith movie, like where the NFL is like supposedly like following right. people around, you know, like that that stuff. The NFL is not going to be like they're not that sinister, you know, like they're they're not they're they're a corporation, you know, so they're protecting their they're they're protecting their business, but they're not. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I never felt like threatened by them. I mean, the the most we got threatened really was when they, you know, when they tried to when they pressured ESPN to withdraw from the you know, from the documentary and that was super uncomfortable for sure. Um, but, 
but it wasn't like a physical, it wasn't like, you know, like I felt in Iraq or anything like that. And I mean, there were, you know, I think there were issues in Iraq, not so much around the institutions actually, because the institutions respond institutionally, mm-hmm. you know, um, so like when the NFL put pressure on, on ESPN to get out of the documentary, that to me was an institutional response designed to protect their relation, their, you know, the relationships with the business partner, protect their brand, you know, like all of that stuff, which, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I feel like, but, you know, in, in Iraq, there was just a lot of like, you know, it's just, there were not a lot of rules, you know, and, and so I, I don't think I ever felt like um, physically threatened by a particular person, but, um, but the environment, you know, in which you were doing the reporting was, you know, was obviously, you know, the yeah. environment being a war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, you're, you're trying to do investigative reporting, yeah. and, you know, so, yeah. so like, um, you know, but, yeah. I, but I don't think, but I think you're right. Like, I think China, I mean, I think we were, you know, I think as we did the reporting, there were questions around like, not our safety, but just like, do we yeah. have to worry about this? You know, we were looking a lot of like, like, you know, one story had a lot to do with, with AI in China yeah. and its use. And, and so I, you know, I think we were always talking about, are there issues that we need to be protective of the work, but never physically threatened. Yeah. And I, I think that's the same. I mean, I, I, I did a story that took me to Russia and, and, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, my phone and all sorts of right. laptop issues and those kinds of things. But not, I never, I, I don't think, I, I can't think of a situation where I felt physically threatened by, by what we do. No. Yeah. I mean, we, we were trying to be protective of, of sources, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and protective of information, you yeah. know, for like hacking or yeah. surveillance. Actually, that was the final set of questions that I had for you guys, which is sort of like looking back over a couple of decades, what things have made doing the work you do easier and what things have made them harder. Like, for example, I don't know whether FOIA works better now than it did in the past or mm-hmm. other ways that you get information, you know, things that are advantageous about the world of the net and not having to be in the same place with someone versus disadvantages now. Um, good question. It is a good question. I mean, some of them are basic things. Like, I, I mean, I think, you know, largely the, the net has made things dramatically easier in mm-hmm. a lot of ways in terms of research um, and finding material and accessing material. And, you know, I mean, there's that, there's that famous scene in, uh, in Spotlight where those guys are rifling through like old phone books or whatever, right? And you know, in the archive at the Boston Globe, and yeah. you know, those days are over. Yeah. So you know, that's nice. But um, and so I, you know, I, I think I don't, I don't know. I'm not a FOIA expert, but it would be interesting. I mean, it strikes me that that institutions are dramatically more emboldened to hold back material, yeah. and have become much more legally savvy or found ways to uh-huh. to get around it. Uh-huh. I, I don't know how true that is. It just that's how it feels to me. Um, well, the source maintaining that you were describing, Mark, like that thing that you're, you know, you learned from Lance, I guess, about like keeping. Does that still hold true? Like, I think definitely. I, I think that the the elements of the job remain like that. That hasn't changed. Like, it's fundamentally about developing relationships and and convincing people to trust you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, there's a different animal around getting documents and finding that material, but I think in terms of of getting people to talk to you and, and keeping sources in the way that Lance has described or, um, um, or, you know, being transparent around why you want somebody to talk to you and giving them a motivation mm-hmm. to talk to you. None of that changes. I don't think, you know, I think it's all about, it's all about developing relationships and trust. You know, I mean, we were talking about trust earlier and obviously we were talking about in the context of partnerships, mm-hmm. but it's, fundamental in dealing with sources, obviously. I mean, you have to, people have to, you know, I think people generally, a lot of people do want to talk, but they have to trust you, you know, especially in sensitive situations like this. You know, I think the other thing that's really changed is that, um, you know, kind of like both the role of the media and society and the perception of the media, you know, like we were, we started off talking about trust and I, I don't think there is a lot of trust well, there isn't, you know, there's not a lot of trust yeah. in the media. Um, it's certainly not in the way when we first got involved. And, and, and it's not as, I, I guess I would say it's, it's like, 
it's not as treated with the same degree of, um, I don't know, I guess, you know, respect the institution of the media, you know, of the media, you know, there's just a lot of, there's been an erosion of that over the last, you know, over the last 10 years. And I think that probably it's hard to know to quantify, but it feels like that probably has an effect on your ability to do your job. Um, Yeah. And, um, be really interesting to circle back to your teachers and see if their students now are still feeling the same thing that you guys felt like, you know, well, like I was talking about, they can reach students the same way. You know, the thing is, it's like, I mean, I showed the first nine minutes of all the president's men in my class. You know, it's the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And, um, you know, so that movie came out in 1976. I graduated from high school in 1980. Yeah. Um, You know, the media, I mean, people were flooding into journalism schools. People were creating investigative reporting units within their papers. You know, there were people like me and other people yeah. who were just like wanted to be, you know, Carl Bernstein or, you know, wanted to be really Dustin Hoffman or Robert Redford. Yeah. I just want to close one final loop, which is like, Steve, you've been teaching this semester. I don't know, Mark, do you ever do any teaching? So any I taught about high that? school for a little bit. Oh, cool. And, yeah. uh, and I miss it. And I, I, yeah. I have an interest in teaching at the college level, but I haven't, yeah. I haven't gotten a gig. Yeah. So I would love to do it at some point. I think it's, you know. I mean, I, anybody who wants to get into this world, I think, you know, I just want to help because I do think it's, you know, as corny as it sounds, it's completely, you know, and as purest, it's an admirable thing to do and it's critical. Yeah. So, yeah, it'd be fun to track your students, Steve, like 10 years from now, see yeah. how many of them have ended up as reporters. But, yeah. yeah. It's true. How many of you inspired to greatness? <laughs> inspired to, to, to throw over their lives for <laughs> <laughs> unclear rewards? Yeah. Um, well, Mark, Steve, thank you guys both very much. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you for Thanks, John. Recall This Book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.